Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm not. You're Tom Askell. I'm Tom Askell. Hey, I was supposed to tell people what Founders is about. Go ahead. What's Founders Exist? Founders Exist for the recovery of the gospel and for reformation of local churches. Right. I've been doing it for a while. Established when? 83. 1983. 1983. Out of a prayer meeting that occurred a year earlier, 1982. Mm. We've been doing this podcast for a while. We are walking through the statement on social justice in the gospel. It's not all we're going to do because eventually we're going to get to the end of it. Then we're yeah. going to do other stuff. Yeah, but we're also talking about the Ten Commandments. That's right. But we're going to get to the That's end it. of that as well. And then we throw a book in there in the middle. But the Ten Commandments are relevant. Ten Commandments are pertinent, pertinent to our day. Pertinent and relevant. Pertinent to our day. Um. So we're going to talk about salvation. Good. That is Article 7 on the statement uh, on social justice and the gospel. Which you can find at statementonsocialjustice.com. Dot com. Wonderful. Well, why don't we discuss it? Okay. I'll read the affirmation. All right. We affirm that salvation is granted by God's grace alone, received through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Every believer is united to Christ, justified before God, and adopted into his family. Thus, in God's eyes, there is no difference in spiritual value or worth among those who are in Christ. Further, all who are united to Christ are also united to one another, regardless of age, ethnicity, or sex. All believers are being conformed to the image of Christ, by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace, all believers will be brought to a final glorified, sinless state of perfection in the day of Jesus Christ. Well, that seems straightforward to me. This is a wonderful statement, I think, a good summary of what the Bible refers to when it speaks of God's salvation. Union with God through Christ and union with those who are in union with Christ. And this is has nothing... There's, there's no qualifiers, there's no disqualifiers that are based upon any person's uh, natural standing, any person's ethnicity, anything that he might bring to the table, because we are all saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are united to Christ, that phrase, about halfway through the affirmation, all who are united to Christ are also united to one another, regardless of age, ethnicity, or sex. So Galatians 3.28 comes to mind. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this seeks to affirm our unity, our oneness in the Lord Jesus uh, at a time when there is uh, more and more emphasis on uh, our diversity on whether you are male or female, whether you are um, a person of color or not a person of color, whether you are a person of a certain sexual orientation or a person who doesn't have that sexual orientation. That seems to be going on a lot in the uh, social justice efforts. So this affirmation seeks to affirm this unity in Christ, oneness in Christ. Yeah, and and what is important for us to remember, to never let go of, is that an 80-year-old female Christian has more in common with a 10-year-old male Christian than with other 80-year-old mm -hmm. females mm -hmm. who are not Christians. And that's true 
not just of age, not true, true, not just of sex, but it's also true of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, uh, background experiences, all of that. Those things have a place in our understanding of who we are, but none of those things rises to the level of trumping what we are, who we are in Christ. And if we focus on that, then we're going to be able to deal with a lot of these other things that might otherwise pit us against one another. So we're getting into the topic of identity. Absolutely. And how do we think about ourselves as Christians? um, And we should think of ourselves as sons and daughters of God, as uh, having been brought into unity with the Lord Jesus, and therefore at unity with anyone else, no matter their differences, if they too have been washed in the blood of our Lord. It's, it seems like most Christians I know would say, well, of course, yes, this is, this is right. Of course, my identity as uh, a follower of Christ trumps any other um, identities I might claim. But it seems to me that this is something that happens almost imperceptibly. We drift away from this idea. We begin to think of ourselves not primarily as belonging to Christ, in Christ, and therefore experiencing all the implications of that with other believers. But it's just a slow drift away from that into these other identities. Yeah, I see that too. And I think that it is due more to the identity politics of our culture that has been promoted and has um, uh, wound up highlighting a kind of tribalism that has come into the church and it has no place in the church. If we are in Christ, then other things are of relative insignificance. Not that they are not part of our experience and who we are, but they are so far down the totem pole of importance that they are relatively insignificant. And if we remember that, then we'll be able to deal with some of these things that have been uh, dividing Christians over the last several years. Yeah. I think there's more going on than just identity in this particular um, topic of salvation and the statement, which comes out. There's another idea that I think is very important to what's going on in the culture around us in the denial portion. So I'm going to read that and then try to emphasize what I see there. Uh, It says, we deny that salvation can be received in any other way. We also deny that salvation renders any Christian free from all remaining sin or immune from even grievous sin in this life. We further deny that ethnicity excludes anyone from understanding the gospel, nor does anyone's ethnic or cultural heritage mitigate or remove the duty to repent and believe. Especially in that first sentence, we deny that salvation can be received in any other way. I would anticipate many people saying, Why is that relevant? Why would you even put that sentence in this statement? Are there people that are really saying that salvation can be received in another way? And I think this is a a subtle point, but one that needs to be addressed, that what's going on in social justice efforts is a another way of salvation. There's another religion at work. I think of Paul in Jerusalem. When he goes to Jerusalem and there's the Jews that are very nationalistic and there's a um, Jewish identities at a fever pitch, Jewish customs and traditions. What's really going on there at, at its 
most fundamental level is another way of salvation. If we went to those those folks gathered in uh, Jerusalem in the temple and said, what's going on here? Paul would be an enemy of their religion, of their devotion to whatever God it is that they have. And uh, the way to be saved is to come and accept these Jewish customs. And, and therefore, I'm saying some of the Christians wouldn't necessarily say you have to do these to become a Christian. Some of them may say that you need to do those Jewish customs. But whatever God it is they're serving, whatever their full devotion is going toward, well, then salvation comes through this other way. And the Apostle Paul would not agree to that. He said, no, that's not salvation. Salvation comes through Christ alone. Well, in the same way, I see that's that's going on, certainly in social justice efforts outside of the evangelical, reformed evangelical world. And I see many in the reformed evangelical world drifting in that direction, kind of taking some of those methods, some of those means of salvation and still trying to say, well, we're not using it as a means of salvation, mm -hmm. but we still think it's a good thing. But it's beginning to mix in with this other kind of religious devotion. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to see how uh, radically opposed Paul is to it, just read Galatians. I mean, the, let anyone, if it's an apostle, even an angel from heaven who would come into the church and preach something contrary to this simple gospel of faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, let him be eternally damned to hell. That's what he says in Galatians 1. And he is expecting Christians to be so attuned to the gospel that they would recognize a false gospel that adds to it, even if it came out of the mouth of an apostle or an angel. And you're right. Nobody's intentionally saying these things today. Nobody's standing up and saying, oh, no, you got to do these other things in order to be saved. But by implication, that is what is being promoted very often when the message is, oh, yeah, this person believes that salvation is in faith by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and they are trusting Christ alone, and they are depending upon him only to get them right with God. But look at these sins. Look at these sins that they commit. Well, well they don't have the gospel. And that's been said. And when that's been said, that, that has been an attack on the biblical gospel. Today we're going to talk about a book by Ben Sass, The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Mm. I think this book came out, what, two years ago, Jared? Is that right? 2016? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, so. it, I think it is. And uh, Ben Sass is a senator. Is that correct? That's From right. From Nebraska. That's right. Okay. And he's been pretty prominent here in recent months with a lot that's been going on in the Senate, uh, especially most recently with the hearings regarding Judge Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's come out really good, in my estimation, on those issues. He writes this book uh, out of his own experience and observation as a parent, as a politician, and having been the president of a small college when he was dealing with, as a president, these young adults who are transitioning into full adulthood and seeing just how passive they were how they, they seem to be almost um, paralyzed in mm. making key decisions or moving into full-fledged responsibility. So tell us about the book and uh, what your take is on it. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Uh, he divides the book into two parts. In the first part, he talks about our passivity problem. And then in part two, 
he advances a solution to this passivity problem, an active program. I was struck by how important the passivity problem is in understanding it. He talks a lot about education in this part, and he, he set up a scenario where he talked about Jean-Jacques Rousseau over against Augustine, that there has been this, this age-old debate going on. And he's just, he's using Augustine and Rousseau as kind of foils for that conversation. But said, we see in Rousseau this, um, the reality or the teaching that our main problem comes from outside of us. You know, man is free, um, and yet he's free in and of himself, but everywhere he looks, he's in chains. So the real problem comes from outside of us. He says, that's Rousseau. He disagrees with Rousseau, likes to argue with Rousseau, uh, and he's an Augustinian. So Augustine would say, no, our main problem comes from within. We have a sin problem in ourselves, and that needs to be put to death. That's where the struggle is. Well, he says that debate's going on, and in walks John Dewey, the American pragmatist uh, philosopher and kind of the leading thinker in our educational system today and what's come to be our educational system today. He says, John Dewey walks into this debate and just waves everybody off. says, hey guys, let's not worry about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Let's just get to work. This is going to be pragmatic here. Well, he said, that's created a lot of the problems that we see in the educational system today. And that's borne some nasty fruit with our passivity problem. Uh, we're stranded in Neverland, he says, like Peter Pan, who doesn't want to grow up. And he talks about how originally that book really looked down on the idea that Peter Pan doesn't want to grow up. And now it's kind of romanticized where we think, yeah, this is a good thing. Be like Peter Pan and don't grow up. So good stuff up front. When he gets to the active program, I think he just hits on a lot of uh, important points, things that we can learn from as followers of Christ. He talks about fleeing this age segregation. Um, that society divides everybody up now. You got the old folks, you got the middle-aged folks, you got the young folks, you got the children. And uh, I kept thinking about how this we do this in the church. So we find ways. Uh, I grew up in a in a church that during the Bible study hour on Sunday morning, we had you know children, toddlers, um, elementary age kids, middle school kids, high school kids, young singles, old singles, young married, old marrieds, you know, we begin to divide everybody up. Well, you can see the problems that would come from that. And we're not against some targeted teaching in the church, but this great amount of age segregation seems to play into the passivity problem rather than having sons look up to their fathers and begin to learn and see them working, uh, young Women as well, looking up to father and mother and um, growing up and becoming active. Yeah, we have an age-integrated podcast. I'm an old we guy, do. you're a young guy. Hey, there you go. So, there you go. We're doing it. Man. So, We've, as a father, though, you got six kids. Congratulations on your newest just thank you. six weeks ago. So, as a father, how does this uh, book and, and what Sass argues for here help you to think about uh, challenging your children, shaping them, molding them, training them. Well, two of the things he talks about beyond the age segregation, he talks about embracing work pain and work pain, work pain, P A I N P A I N no pain, no gain, as they used to say back in the day. Um, and he just started building a bookshelf, meaning, you know, just get diligent about reading and create a culture of reading in your home. 
So those are two things that we we try to do with our children. We want them to be active. We want them to um, be engaging, learning to read, um, reading books, talking about books that they're reading, and then just giving them responsibilities. So we do have six kids, and um, each one of them have responsibilities, not the youngest one because he's just born. His responsibility is to eat and sleep. <laughs> but everybody else, we some kind of tasks, some kind of responsibilities. That's a routine in the home where they're becoming active. They're getting used to uh, just what it takes to earn a buck in the world. Yeah, and Sass sees this as a major problem. I mean, he's talking about cultural uh, existence and can we survive if we continue on this path of uh, this infantilization of our youth. I think it is important to see that there is a passivity problem. If, if we could see that in the broader society, we will be better positioned to raise up the next generation to be active. If we don't see that there's this passivity problem, then we might think, hey, our kids are really going after it. They seem to be really excelling, when in reality they may not be. One of the ways I see this is in trying to get young people uh, jobs. You know, mm-hmm. It used to be, I've talked to my grandfather, and I'll hear about him working about eight years old. He had a, some Newspaper route, he'd get on a bicycle and go deliver newspapers. Well, yeah, you too. Absolutely. Yeah, back when the world was black and white. <laughs> um, but now, you know, there's so many child labor laws, you probably can't get a kid out there. You certainly can't get him out there at eight years old. But I, I wasn't quite, I was a little older than eight. A little bit older. Yeah, maybe okay. 12. Well, it's one of the tensions we have is how we, how we create this culture of work in a, a society that seems to be downplaying it. Very good. Okay, today we are up to number eight in our talking about the Ten Commandments. So what is the Eighth Commandment, Jerry? Thou shalt not steal. And what are the duties that are required in the Eighth Commandment? Not stealing. (laughs) That's a good starting point. So wait a minute. You shall not steal. What makes stealing possible? Why is stealing even a thing? Sin. Private property. There has to be ownership if there can be theft. So the Bible does acknowledge ownership of property by individuals. There you go. And that is to be respected. We are to honor our fellow creatures by not taking their stuff. Don't take their stuff. That's something that's um, forbidden in the Eighth Commandment. One of the duties required is rendering to everyone his due. So when you think about the upside of the Eighth Commandment, not only are we not to take uh, another person's belongings, but we are to give. And it seems to me this is where a lot of the tension comes in, is what is a person's due? And how do we go about rendering that do too. So what does every image bearer of God uh, have coming to it? What, is, what, is every, what does every image bearer of God have a right to expect that 
he is uh, to be shown by others. Respect. Dignity. What else? Compassion. Indeed, compassion. Mm-hmm. So I think we have a a right to be treated as image bearers and not to be treated as animals, not to be treated as inanimate objects. Yeah. The Westminster Longer Catechism says a part of this Eighth Commandment is giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. And then they cite a few passages, like um, 1 John 3.17. This is coming to you in the KJV, because that's what's in front of me. But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him. So they're even citing this, this seeing a brother in need. How could we shut up compassion? So part of do not steal is to uh, try to bless others in their need. Yeah. And as all of the commandments, the, this one is so uh, integrated into the rest of God's moral uh, call upon us as his image bearers, that we are to give to what others what they are owed. We are to protect what is theirs. And so we're to honor our fellow creatures. If we were to do this, uh, so many of the social ills in our day would be uh, eliminated because God's law is not only right, it's good. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.